This sounds strange, like Rami's boners and masturbation are tied to the American dream, but they are. Welcome to Cringe Watchers, a podcast where we invite our expert friends to binge watch TV and talk about sex. I'm Layla Darabi. And I'm Lori Edelman. For this episode, we watched Rami and asked Maitha Alhassan what it's like to write the cringiest scene in TV history. Layla, are you cringing or binging this week? I am binging. Are you familiar with the New York celebrity Pale Mail? No. Pale Mail is a red-tailed hawk who, like Tupac, has been rumored to be dead or alive for a generation and uh, is at the center of one of my favorite New York scandals. He may or may not have died this week, which is very sad. There are many people who thought he was dead before, but if you have ever seen a red-tailed hawk in New York City, and we have many, he's like Genghis Khan. They're all descendants of his. So I don't want to get too much into the deep history of Pale Mail, but he was at the center of a controversy because he built a nest on a very fancy apartment building across the street from Central Park where Mary Tyler Moore, Paula Zahn, and other fabulous New Yorkers, wealthy celebrities lived. And there was a huge debate about whether or not they should remove his nest from their building because he and his mate were bringing rats and squirrels and dropping the carcasses at the feet of the doorman building. I kind of love this nature versus the rich setup. There was a huge controversy about 20 years ago where his nest was removed, but then protesters won and his nest was put back. And there's an amazing documentary called The Legend of Pale Mail. It's all available on the internet. But I also want to plug just bird Twitter. I think Manhattan Bird Alert is a great place to start at Bird Central Park is the handle. And Manhattan Bird Alert reposts a lot of other avid park birders in Manhattan and Brooklyn. And Pale Mail is not the only celebrity bird living in this city. I know a lot of people read about Flacco, the Eurasian owl who escaped from the zoo and is now living free. It's a story. And if you need some escapist content that uh, has controversies, it's its own reality program. I highly recommend. I'm sold. Sounds like a wonderful, very niche genre that I could get into. Are you binging or cringing, Lori? I am cringing this week. I have a double cringe. So I did a civil ceremony with my partner last week, which was super fun. And I really enjoyed being in a DMV-like setting with a room full of brides. My cringe is, having now had this experience, if you see a bride walk by and she is visibly bridal in any way, shape, or form, you throw a compliment. Don't, no New Yorker is too cool. You need to give her a, you look great, have a wonderful day, and do not under any circumstances say to that bride, congratulations. The partner gets a congratulations. If there's two brides, no one gets a congratulations. I don't want to hear it. (laughs) Don't at me. My second cringe is unchecked privilege in general, but specifically, I don't know why this keeps coming to me this week, if it's a universe thing or what, people who compare not that hard of a thing to a harder thing like war. Why (laughs) (laughs) don't do a comparison in the harder direction. It's only okay to do a comparison in the less hard direction. This is my cringe. I think you may have just stumbled into the best transition in cringe watchers history because you know what we need people to keep their Holocaust comparisons. We really do. So this episode may take the cake for cringe watchers. There's a lot of cringe watchers records that were set with this episode. We do take on the topic of the Middle East. Um, we talk about Palestine. We talk about Israel. We talk about occupation. We have an actual writer of the show that we're talking about on our show, which is always a really wonderful thing and something I think that we have not actually been able to do in our show's history in the past. So that might be a cringe watchers first. But we specifically are talking today about the most recent season of Rami. So season three of Rami, the episode is entitled Egyptian Cigarettes, and it takes place in Jerusalem. I know many people know and love this show, which is getting rising acclaim. But Rami is a show that follows a New Jersey 
born Egyptian American in his struggles with uh, faith and sexuality. And on this episode, we see Rami arrive in Jerusalem on a private jet. He's with his Jewish friend Yuval and his uncle Nassim, both of whom are in the diamond business with him. He's trying to strike a big deal, the biggest deal of his life. The main things we need to know about this episode going into the interview are A, Rami has been trouble having trouble getting it up, keeping it up. He's having erectile dysfunction. And B, he's about to make the biggest deal of his life on his own as a jewel dealer after working for someone else in the Diamond District in New York City. So he's on his route to Jerusalem. He wants to meet the head of the Diamond Club, who turns out to be a very powerful Israeli woman named Ayala. That's right. And this episode won critical acclaim. It has won multiple awards and it's gotten people talking so much. There are so many episodes of the show Rami that we could have chosen to talk about on our show. You know, they, they cover issues of sexuality, like, you know, the number of pennies that you can find laying around the street. And it's, you can't take a step without stepping on something. They have an abortion episode. They have orgies. There are, you know, there's sex with disabled person. There is sex with a relative, sex with a relative. There's intergenerational sex. There's friends helping friends get off. There's pretty much any issue of sex or sexuality that you could think about is covered in this show. That being said, what we really appreciated about this episode was it felt like it tied together so many different issues, geopolitical issues, and interpersonal issues, and issues that were true to the characters. And so we really were just dying to talk to the one of the main writers behind this episode and, and dig in a little bit more. And I think one of the things that we both appreciated so much about Metha as a guest is she's not only an artist and a writer, but she's also an activist. And she really brought such a full personal and political lens to this conversation. We all got into our own connections to the Middle East, to religion, to Islam and Judaism. And uh, it's a messy topic. We were almost afraid to touch, but this was, I think, the perfect and expert guest to unpack it all and bring a little humor and really transparent view to a very complicated topic. That's right. We want you to just listen to the interview. There's not much else to be said. We hope you enjoy our conversation with Maytha. Maytha, welcome to Cringe Watchers. We're so delighted to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And I have to say you are a dream guest for this podcast because you are responsible for creating by far one of the cringiest moments I've ever witnessed on television. And we're going to jump right into that because we have so much that we want to ask you and hear from you about. So I'm just going to start right off with this cringiest scene ever, and it pertains to the word congratulations. Okay, so let's just set this up for our audience. This is the scene where the Israeli jewelry business owner, let's call her Ayala, asks Rami to draw the Prophet Muhammad to prove he's not a religious fanatic. So Already, we are in a cringe zone. I mean, the whole setup of the episode is beyond cringe. There's a lot of tension at play. So he picks up the pen. He's seemingly ready to draw the image. Then she stops him and claims, ha, 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 it was a joke all along. And then we go to this place that's even more intense where she starts describing that her mother is a Holocaust survivor. And of course, Rami, never one to back down from a fight, blurts out, Congratulations. What did you say? Uh, I said, uh, Congratulations. Are you being sarcastic? No, no, I, no, no, of course not. No, I meant to. I mean, uh, surviving the Holocaust, that, that's, that's huge. You know, I mean, the, the, and the, the numbers were, were not good. So to, to, to get out, I mean, that, I feel like that's, that, deserves a big congratulations. And then he, of course, tries to walk that back, tries to recover, says, oh, you know, congratulations is just a misunderstood word, just like Allahu Akbar. <laughs> um, so we just were dying to talk to you about this. I have so many questions, but I just would love for you first to talk us through 
your writing process on the scene, which like invites us to sit in the cringe and not look away. And so I'm just curious, like, what was it like writing this? And what do you want viewers to take away from this scene? When you said cringiest, I knew automatically the scene you <laughs> yeah. were going to throw to. So a, a couple things up top, Rami and I co-wrote this episode together. And I have to be 100% honest, when I first read his setup around congratulations, it didn't jump off the page until I, I mean, I went back and forth with him and what Rami tends to do as a performer, he's taken a lot of improv classes. He's a stand-up comedian. So that ability to pivot, and a lot of the actors too have that background. So him and Julian, who plays his uh, partner in crime <laughs> in this diamond business, they both just played off of each other remarkably throughout the season, but so much so in this episode as well. And so where Rami takes it and pushes with his cringy play of the character, we have to say the character Rami's, digging his heels deeper and deeper into a very, as you said, cringe moment is part of how this scene lives in the real world. And again, where he takes it off the page is such a remarkable feat of storytelling. Because of course, I mean, and where the tie of this comes is at the end of the episode, right? But what we know of Rami is this is a character that says the things he's thinking at the absolute wrong time, <laughs> you know? And then withholds the honesty when it needs to be breathed out into the world. So there's a relationship with honesty, which a lot of us can relate to with the exception of blurting out the unfiltered parts. And then trying to make sense of that in front of everybody. And as you could see, too, the actors we have are also remarkable. So the looks on their faces across the dinner table were priceless. Julian trying to get Rami to shut up. Ayala extra confused with every next line that just emerges from his mouth. And then Salim, who is kind of the instrumental figure here between Ayala and her nephew and Rami, also just stunned and of course the holocaust survivor in the room who's kind of out of it a little in it just sets up the scene so well it's interesting to to be part of the writing process for that to watch it because i also accompanied them by the way this is kind of rare in the world of streaming right now to be able to be a writer and to be on set and to be in what we call 4867 or what I call 4867 from my organizing background. Can you share with the listeners what you mean by 4867? So how people tend to reference the area is Palestine, Israel, or occupied Palestine. However, I'm, and this comes through in the episode and was part of the conversations Rami and I had, and he's very much politically around this as well, which is that the idea of the nation state as a name, as a nationality, as borders, is like an ancient artifact that for whatever reason, we continue to believe in the myth-making and the identity formation that is defined by these fictive borders. So what folks who have a justice politics, uh, let's say around Palestine, probably left folks, they'll refer to it by the years, the map-making has shifted and changed and created the borders that we have today. So 48 is what people would call, quote unquote, Israel, you know, Jerusalem's in there, Haifa's in there, Tel Aviv's in there, and 67 would be, quote unquote, occupied territories, Gaza, West Bank, Golan Heights, even though that was annexed illegally, and there's settlers that are also in 67 now. So it makes, for me, more sense to refer in those ways and to also delink the nationalist tendencies around geography. Yeah, I, I really appreciate you kind of jumping right into that for us. And one of the reasons I loved this scene so much is because I think it works on two levels, right? It works on the level of the character. It's true to the character. Like this is absolutely within the realm of something Rami would do and has done. But of course, there are also these like huge geopolitical questions that are present in the room. And to me, when I heard that congratulations, and I should say both 
Layla and I have like an interesting relationship to like identity and Judaism on this topic. So I'm like a black Jew. Layla can share her identity. And, you know, I think when I heard the congratulations remark, I was like, dang, that is so good. Cause it's kind of this, to me, it read as like this subtle way of pushing back against the way the Holocaust has been weaponized and the way like calls around anti-Semitism have been weaponized as a justification for occupation, right? So it's like that claim to the Holocaust survivalism, like, of course, it's obviously that that's a horrifying thing, but there's this other thing that we don't have the ability to express or that like where speech has been very, very stifled. And so I felt like that was just a great use of Rami's character to like name that really just weird, awkward, wrong thing to say. And what happens in the next scene, which is between Rami and Julian's character Yuval, is that Yuval says, just say, it's so loaded here, just say sorry and move on. And then Rami says, why do I say sorry? I didn't do it, right? That, like, those couple of lines really reflect on these longstanding discourses of what accountability for the Holocaust looks like, and then what it means for people who <laughs> were not Nazis, right? <laughs> we're not part of the expelling, the persecution, the genocide of Jews through the Holocaust. So those subtle lines and a lot of lines in this episode really are hitting on arguments that could be unpacked for days. I mean, just what you were saying with, can you draw the profit? What we were also trying to once in that scene and then later on in the episode, critique is the faith washing, is like this idea that, you know, Muslims and Jews, they can work together and get over the political strife. And it's just all about being on a person to person level. And it's a long standing religious real estate debate. No, it's it's not. One of the things I love so much about the well, this whole episode, but this scene in particular is how many times uh, the power shifts or the cringe shifts or how symmetrical the episode is. I mean, cause we'll, we'll talk about this later, but the episode also ends with another very cringy congratulations. Uh, but you know, you start out with Ayala telling this really tasteless Islamophobic joke that you're not sure is a joke. And she's saying in order to demonstrate your viability as a business partner. I want you to go against your faith and draw the image of your prophet. And I want to see if you will break your own values in front of me. And then she, he starts to do it and she says, no, <laughs> just kidding. And you think that she's the bad guy. And then he steps in it with congratulations. And it's like, oh no, if there's, if there's one thing worse than uh, riling up a Muslim about the prophet, it's uh, riling up Jews about the Holocaust. It's such an interesting two sidesism because we're used to what you're describing, which is if we all sit at a table, won't we all just get along? And what this scene might be saying is if we all sit in a table, all of our nasty prejudices might come out. And in that same scene, he said, Rami says, where's my uncle who's been detained since they got there? And he said, well, sometimes they detain Palestinian men, older Palestinian men and younger men and women. And it's just like, as an aside to maybe take the edge off of the Holocaust conversation, he's throwing in this other imbalance. But one of the things I was curious about in the line you just cited, when Rami says, well, why should I apologize? I wasn't part of it, is to me that really harkens to like white Americans not understanding reparations of Black Lives Matter. And I wondered if that was intentional. What was intentional, and this is what's interesting about writing for TV, and especially on a show, you know, I was just talking to another writer, we're in the strike, the difference between plotty based shows and character driven shows, is that we're asking how these characters feel and what's real and true in their world and in their responses. So for example, you know, Yuval, and I stepped aside with Rami on this, Julian improved and said, why don't we just, I know how to solve it, just give it to the black people, right? As also almost as if there is this notion of this white American Jew who has no idea that there are black people there, right? You have black Ethiopian East African Jews, you have 
Black Jews from all over the diaspora who are there. And then you also have Afro-Palestinians who are also there as well. So there's so many levels to trying to illustrate the disconnect or what political positions, the kind of myopia they'll create for a character. And that this is where we were really trying to just step on that tightrope of what does it mean to tell this story and to not be so boxy and to not be earnest and talking points. How do we move this conversation? How do we move the story, not just in this episode for this season, but also kind of speak to as much as possible with all those lines? And there is a critique here too of American exceptionalism. There's a critique around how we understand American privilege traveling abroad and in that space as well. Let's get to our our next setup because I think we want to we want to have that conversation and just as a side note, you know, so appreciative, you know, today and always of the writers and I I really appreciate that you're advocating for yourselves and we're in solidarity. Layla I think has the next scene which get, touches on exactly what you're what you're talking about. The centerpiece of this episode is Rami going back and forth to East Jerusalem and passing through a checkpoint. And so he's uh, in the midst of trying to secure this big business deal with the with the diamond conglomerate has matched with a Palestinian woman on a dating app and goes off to meet her. He goes through a checkpoint. It's very cringy. He whips out his American passport to see if he can cut the line. And when he finally gets to meet her, he's bitching about how he didn't realize he'd have to go through a checkpoint. He's at one point, he compares it to the inconvenience of the Lincoln Tunnel. Like you never know how long the traffic's going to take and the toll has become really expensive. And with seemingly no self-awareness, he's complaining about uh, tolls and comparing, you know, a tunnel uh, between two parts of the tri-state area to the checkpoint here. And so he meets this woman, Rasha, and she really puts him in his place pretty quickly. At one point she says, oh, in your picture, you had a beard. It was cuter. I feel tricked. And then he says... You feel tricked. I had to go through a checkpoint. I came all the way here. What if we just come Are we here? supposed to have sex because you went through a checkpoint? No, I, I, didn't, I didn't say that. I, I No, I'm, I'm just saying, you know, like, do you, do you really have that many options? Do you think you are the best I can do because of the occupation? Kind of. It's scary out there. One of the things I really love about her character is that she keeps surprising him. She's a lingerie designer. Her tagline of her company is everyone has the right to be sexy. And he seems taken aback by the fact of her job by this. He says, well, how do you tell your Muslim family that you do this? And she says, oh, you know, Muslims from the West are so uptight. So what I would love, we're so excited to have you here because as the woman in the writing room on this episode to say, what are we seeing here? What are we learning about Muslim women, about stereotypes, women in general, the comparison between our expectations of the Palestinian woman versus the American man? Walk us through this scene. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we had a ton of conversations that were pretty aligned, surprisingly. What's cool about being in a writer's room that is majority Muslim, has a significant presence of Arabs, is that we can have the variety of diverse views in the room, hash out what makes sense. And of course, there's no homogenous Muslim American experience. However, we did notice through putting our experiences on the table that there was an understanding that in places where, like the US in particular, Muslims are a minority, there's almost this doubling down on identity features that are in contrast. And so what has happened, I mean, there's so many different ways to think about why we might see Muslim Americans to some degree being a little bit more conservatives or Muslims in the diaspora being more conservative because, you know, immigrants, if they're part of that community, left at maybe the 60s or 70s and then had a vision of what faith looked like, right? Like during a certain turning point, but then... Now they're in conversation about how they're different than other faith communities in America. And so that 
that's an iterative process that changes the dynamics of how people see themselves in a given place as a quote unquote minority in a country, even though they're a global majority, right? Or part of a global majority. Now, what was interesting in having conversations with, this was my second time in 4867 with Palestinians in 48, was that they said Palestinians in 67 tend to be less conservative, less strict than the ones in 48 for similar reasons that they felt like they were or they're experiencing internal colonialism. And so the contrast for them from this secular Tel Aviv lifestyle was going in on Muslim as a cultural identity piece that had clearly defined, again, contrast. Muslims that are able to create their understanding of their culture and tradition on their own terms. Again, this is a long conversation, but it's also something I found in my own family. I watched as my cousins in Lebanon and in Saudi Arabia would introduce their parents to their boyfriends and girlfriends at a time when, you know, my dad growing up here in Los Angeles would tell me, I don't want to meet anybody until you're, they want to become engaged with you. That subversion of expectations was something that was pretty common. And then I'll add another aside, which is fascinating. Rami and I have had these conversations about how Muslim American community has received the show. And some community members, some people within the community have felt that cringe and that tension around, you know, Rami in the first season dating. I don't know if you would call it dating, but... <laughs> Picking up a married Muslim woman during Ramadan at the mosque who wears the headscarf and they're in an adulterous relationship. And that was hard for a lot of Muslims to witness. But it was really funny because our show, which was largely uncensored in um, Arabic satellite television, people loved it, loved the full expression of what we tackle with gender and sexuality. So sorry, long explanation, but and it's touching on so many things. I mean, I know Lori shared her background. So I'm Iranian American of Muslim descent, but grew up in the US because of the very strict Islamic government in Iran. So I've grown up with really conflicting views on religion and rules. But also, even despite that, and then on my mother's side, I discovered as an adult, we're Hungarian Jews. So it's been a great trump card in discussing Israel and Palestine. But what you're saying, I think, relates to not just religion. It's when you're the minority, you cling to what you know. And cultural markers that make you distinct. Exactly. And so I've had that conversation with cousins who, like me, grew up in the U.S. to say, we've only ever had three to five Iranian dishes because every family gathering is the classics. Whereas you go to Iran and people are cooking much lighter and subbing in turkey instead of lamb and changing it up and experimenting. And there's a fear of experimenting when you're the minority. And then on the flip side, you know, being a New Yorker post 9-11, I think there were so many people with any kind of affinity to the Muslim world who felt more attached afterwards in solidarity. And I have definitely felt I was raised aggressively secular, but have never felt more connected to women wearing hijab than the past 20 uh, years because they are out there much more visibly recognizable accepting the hate and intolerance that is also meant for me, that is meant for my veiled grandmother, that is meant for especially the men in my family. And that has given me such an interesting view. But one of the things that you're describing that I find so interesting is about this show is that because of that fear of intolerance, I'm so hesitant to critique the Muslim community, to critique religion, to critique the any sort of discrepancies. And this show is not afraid to cannibalize, to push on really hot button topics and anger its own community. And I'm wondering if you ever fear backlash from your own family or community. Is that worse than backlash from haters? <laughs> Yeah. Like, how do you think about the gays in general? Oh, my God. This conversation (laughs) is endless, by the way. So I think it is important to make this distinction between communities, multiple communities, too, because we're talking about a Muslim community, Palestinian community, Arab community, Egyptian community in the diaspora. Because, I mean, this episode was directed by a preeminent Palestinian-American woman director, Anne-Marie Josser, and produced by our very own Hiyama Bass, who is the most 
beloved, I would say, Palestinian actor who grew up in a huge family from Haifa and anywhere we went, everybody knew who Hiam was. So it's so interesting and has been fascinating to hear the divergence in responses from the Palestinian American diaspora community versus folks in 4867. So a, a big one of this was Muhammad al-Kurd, if folks know who he is, or if they don't know who he is, he's from Jerusalem, East Jerusalem, and became part of a national conversation around the ethnic cleansing of East Jerusalem because of what people have called displacements around houses, but it's ethnic cleansing. And so him and his sister have been powerful voices in that struggle. And he is critical of us trying to really create and devote ourselves to the perfect victim model. And so I've been sitting with that because, you know, I've been in conversations with Rami, the director. Folks are having a hard time with this episode and they're having a hard time just watching this episode in isolation, by the way. Some folks didn't finish the season, but because of some of the cringe, because of some of the things that it brings up that Rami's this American privileged asshole, that these kids and Rasha and a whole bunch of other folks feel the assholeness and respond and react to it like anybody would. And especially people who are, you know, being targeted or attacked or misunderstood by American hubris, right? And expecting for some, you know, rolling out the red carpet in a checkpoint, right? I think that's been fascinating because us as a community have been, as you said, Leila, it's hard because we've just sat with watching a hundred plus years of one dimensional characters. So unfortunately, we then crave the other dimension, right? The negative and then the positive, as opposed to the real win is a whole character. It's not somebody who is the perfect victim. And it also, the perfect victim plays into that white colonial supremacist gaze because that's the only way that we are granted any kind of existential value is if we can be unblemishable. And we don't, we're not fighting to live to be unblemishable. A hundred percent. And I mean, we see that across movements. We see that in the movement against sexual violence. We see that in Black Lives Matter, movement for Black Lives. You know, this idea of, well, if you're not a perfect victim, you deserve what's coming to you. But there is no such thing as a perfect victim because we can always find a reason um, if you have that thinking. Right. But also, you know, in the cosmology of white supremacy, there's an absolving of any kind of blemish if you are a white perpetrator. You right. get get to see that they were a family guy or <laughs> this came out of nowhere. Right. Or look at look at him on a jet ski before he went and shot up a bank. Like they get all the slack we don't get. It's completely zero sum in that way. No, it's true. I just want to say thank you for the character of Rasha. Yes. That's one of my favorite characters I've ever seen on TV because she's not a victim and she's also not taking any shit and she's just subverting. I don't even think you need to be Middle Eastern or culturally connected to her just to be as a woman validated by her saying like, oh, you think we're just going to fuck because you want to. Yeah. Through a yeah. And of course, there's some real life points of reference in the things that she's brought up. So the laundry company, as you said, Leila, is something that became international news when people realized, or I think there's a book about Syrian lingerie that is openly sold in, you know, out front with people walking as if we don't wear, you know, lingerie. And she says, you know, your mom wears it too. Like, what do you think? Right. I felt that humanization that you were trying to do, um, like beyond this generalized sense of like, oh, in occupied territory, there's pity or there's or you should feel guilty or, you know, it's just like people dating, living, potentially considering fucking under occupation, I think is just a depiction that we need a lot more of. And speaking of whole characters, I'm going to bring us forward because as if there was not like enough going on in this episode, Uncle Nassim, <laughs> I love how you all just threw this in there. He is interrogated. He's pulled aside immediately as soon as they land and basically never makes it past interrogation for the entire trip. So the investigator brings his phone back and points out that he has some 
interesting applications on his phone and opens a profile to a grinder like application. So why did you decide to take this direction with this character? And do you feel like this was a power play or a come on from the Israeli interrogator is just something that I personally really want to know? Yeah, it's it's both those things. And so anybody that's done or been, I don't know, participant in interrogation, I don't know what you would call us, interrogated. Um, anybody that's been interrogated knows that feeling and knows that back and forth that happens, which is all of it is a power play. It's the unacknowledging of what they already know about you. So you're constantly playing this guessing game of what is potentially incriminating, what are they going to get me for? And so it gets you in a state of hyper paranoia. And of course, Uncle Nassim's character has been navigating his sexuality from last season to this season and thinking about how that also hits a fever pitch of paranoia, which of course was something he was already managing, but think about this scene itself and the way that your life is threatened, being in that interrogation room, somebody getting to control where you go, and also somebody getting to control your relationship to your homeland. You know, at one point he says, I am home. Yeah, we're going to send you back home. And he says, I am home. This is my home. And he you know, never really got a chance to see and connect with his homeland. And so that's terrifying. I've been on that receiving end. I was, you know, we've constructed this interrogation scene through stories from me, from other folks. But I've been there for like, I don't know, four or six hours. I was like the last person who was allowed to leave the facility. And it was just fascinating to see what they understood as a threat. And Part of also what we're doing in the scene is acknowledging the pinkwashing as a strategy by Zionism, you know, to say that, hey, you would really like Tel Aviv. This is a place, it's almost like that Bill Maher misnomer of there's no gay bars in the Middle East. I was like, dude, have you been to Beirut? Like, every, I mean, not only that, but you'll see people partying to like 6, 7 a.m. So it is part of this Orientalism. And it's also a really deep, fascinating history around how Orientalism initially comes into play as a way of demeaning and making derogatory people who were marked as too promiscuous, too queer, too sexual. And now it's the flip. You are homophobic. You are just really prudent around sex. So at the end of the day, what Orientalism says there and says in this scene is we're going to revoke the power for you to author your life, right? And it's the ability to be the author of that story. So we're seeing it there, you know, where Uncle Nassim can have his moments are a fuck you, Sharmuta, you know, or a leading caress on the cheek. <laughs> you know, he takes uh, that that turns into something else. And he takes his resistance in ways that Palestinians have really creatively done so throughout the history of their liberation movement. I think it's time for us to come full circle. Let's come back to the last congratulations. Yes. By the end of the episode, we have really been through it with Rami. For me, really been through it with how I feel about Rami. When he leaves his date, he gets into a scuffle with some local kids in East Jerusalem. He steals a bike, he gets stuck, he has his wallet stolen, his ID isn't there, but he's able to be rescued at the checkpoint anyway to return to Jerusalem because the IDF comes and helps him. He perhaps unintentionally or semi-intentionally fingers the kid whose bike he stole, but who stole his wallet, gets that kid carted away. And in the course of it, the IDF puts a jacket on him. So there's a lot of symbolism. It's really rough to watch. But when he gets back to Ayala's house, we find Rami sitting on her beautiful terrace, sort of reminiscing and, or, or reflecting and, and absorbing the day, presumably. They have a discussion. She tells him to unbutton his shirt, to unbutton his pants. She tells him that their, their deal is going to go through in giving him his biggest independent business deal yet. Then she asks him if he's hard and he says yes. And she says, congratulations. And so that's, it's coming full circle. A lot there again. I think we wanted to start just with, you know, what does it mean 
for Rami to be hard in this context? Like, is that a sexual thing? Has he restored his manhood by like making this business deal? I kind of wanted to start with the symbolism of that. And then, you know, of course, there's more to this around sort of his obliviousness and whether his actions overall are excusable. or And of course, that's explored throughout the season as he continues to kind of return to this incident. So want to start with the boner and then we'll go from there. <laughs> yeah. So we've been tracking Rami's relationship to his sexuality since season one, using that as a driver of how to think about this sounds strange, like Rami's boners and masturbation are tied to the American dream, but they are. <laughs> <laughs> where we have oh like childhood Rami trying to figure out where he fits in in the Strawberries 9-11 episode in season one by thinking he only has two choices, either agreeing with Osama bin Laden's violent message or big tittied middle-aged white woman in the front of like a town and country magazine. And so that decision sets up the existential issues that Rami is dealing with in season two and season three. And, you know, in the season two, we were exploring what turned into a porn addiction and also a candy addiction that overstimulation to fill a God-shaped void that he's carrying, even though he thinks he has a relationship with Islam, but his Islam is filtered through that relationship he has with American capitalism, with American individualistic value systems, and many other ills of our time, right? And so then right now, I know this is a big setup, but what we're thinking about here, and you know, in the previous episode, he was preoccupied with not getting hard. He went to his physician friend to scan his brain around images that could possibly stimulate him and didn't. And he, what he says there, his friend um, Ahmed, like the most extreme things light up your brain. And so what he's put into before the deal goes through was a level of threat, danger, fear, that was at its most extreme. And that was thrilling and exciting for him. That was his stimulant. And that is an American stimulant around the phallic guns, right? Like, oh, it makes me so hard to shoot guns, right? People say that. And that's a part of how we've connected masculinities, sexualities to militarism, to violent gun culture. And that's a part of what we're talking about here. And, you know, she also brings up this episode is called Egyptian Cigarettes, the way that every other country in the world exposes what the cancerous effects of cigarettes, like the literal deformed fetus and the hole in, in the throat, the gross teeth. But America and Israel are the only ones that don't have that packaging. And why? I mean, even Ayala says, you know, I don't even you know, really believe in Zionism. And that was like, again, the through line in this episode that people have, the jig is up on the nation state, right? But there's still a psychological commitment that we have that remains uninterrogated. And that's Rami's like, yeah, sometimes I'm proud to be an American. Yeah, sometimes I'm, you know. When I'm in line at the checkpoint. <laughs> right, right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's that's what we're dealing with here. And I think there's also what holds us through for the rest of the season for people that, you know, were so triggered they didn't continue is Rami's guilt that he feels because he knows that the position that he put the ch child, Khalid, in sets him up for, unfortunately, an epidemic with Palestinian children. And that's the way they've been criminalized and also basically rounded up and now, you know, shot like how many black kids do we talk about in america right black children you know the kids who played our actors in this episode that's their reality their reality and why they wanted to be a part of this project was to show you know these kids are from janine and janine is where the journalist shireen abu akleh was shot and murdered and her murder which i believe was the anniversary of it was may 11th happened when we were tech scouting so we actually went to the, um, the wake the family had, our cast came, the reality of the situation, which you can never escape when you're in 4867, was 
intensified, clearly. And I, I just also want to add those kids, they're part of the Freedom Theater in Janine. That's how we found them. We had written multiple letters to Israeli authorities to give them permits to come to the other side. I mean, there could be a story about the story of this. And it wasn't until the third letter, and I was working with our PA to word this letter strongly and <laughs> suggestively, that they got their permits. And for the kid that played Khaled, Wadiye, that was the first time he left 67. That's the first time he saw the water of his own homeland. So people in our crew, the American part of our crew, and by the way, we had a massive Palestinian crew, which was amazing to be able to work with Palestinian folks who were, you know, script coordinator by day and a lawyer by night. They were so committed to this film industry. So our American crew took him to go into the water for the first time, bought him a swimsuit. But just to think about how this episode was reflecting a reality, but also there was a reality happening that was reflected on the show. What a moment to be there. What an incredible story. Have you seen the documentary Promises? No, 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 no. It's like 20 years old. It follows kids living on different sides of checkpoints. And you just reminded me of, of a really powerful scene in that documentary where after all of this pen pal ship, they're going to introduce the Israeli kid to the Palestinian kid and they get in the car and they drive for such a short period of time. And the Israeli kid says, what? We're, we're, we're here already? <laughs> he had no idea this under the universe existed. And of course, they cruise through the checkpoint. And, and that really stuck with me the way, you know, you don't see the water if your world is constructed to censor that information from you. Yeah, or you don't even really notice the different license plates, the different water tanks. So, of course, the water access is different. Also, the IDs, you know, allegedly being a democracy, your IDs have to state your religion. And it was actually a Palestinian atheist who petitioned to be able to call himself an atheist because the only choices that were available were Jewish, Muslim, Christian. That says a lot. <laughs> Those are on your ID cards. That's wild to think about. And, you know, if you're from 67 can't marry somebody from 48. I mean, it, the, the way all of that works, and again, with this wall, which is why it was so important to construct this episode around the wall and the checkpoints. Because like you said, if you're not going there, you don't know what's cut off. And what's really painful to think about, because we filmed on uh, the 48 side, were the apartment buildings that are facing the wall right now, before they were facing their fellow community, right? But now their permanent view is of this wall. Well, hopefully semi-permanent because all walls come down. Right. That might be a beautiful note to end on and to pivot to our cringe fire. Well, I could talk to you about this all day because you're bringing up so many things. Can I ask, did you notice a little cameo? perhaps. Did you walk by? In the episode? Ah! Yeah. You oh, on the Tinder swiping. I yes. totally saw that. I totally saw that. Well, that, that's also, I mean, to end on a little bit more of a comedic note, that's also a fascinating story. So when we were tech scouting too, and we were trying to figure out, okay, when are we going to do the photo shoot for the, the Tinder-like dating site? We just gave our, I mean, we had already written, there's a girl in a bikini there's uh, a mother looking figure because rami has that thing with older women and mothers <laughs> he does. that he swipes right on and then there's an idf soldier which he swipes left on and then he matches with rasha and so what's funny is it's not only just me as the writer that's you know the bikini one and because everybody knows i have my hawaii bikini or my <laughs> beach island vibe bikini pictures unfortunately all over instagram i feel so bad for my students former and current who decide that they want to follow my instagram for some sort of political education and <laughs> just see their professor in swimsuits there's politics there there absolutely is but that was supposed to be just a stand-in and they just ended up using my picture and the person who's the mom with the child is the director Anne marie josser oh amazing wow. amazing yes that's a great detail and the taxi cab driver is our art director for the episode. He He's always cast in Anne-Marie's work because his eyes are this amazing, expressive. They have this amazing, expressive look to them. And of course, he just does that scene so well. Like, what do you expect? The Great Wall of China is not right. on GPS. Right. <laughs> Are you ready for the cringe fire? I'm going to be honest. I am the most nervous about this part because <laughs> I have 
my professorial tendency to give a five to 15 minute response. So <laughs> we won't let you. Okay, great. You can great. Do yeah, it. Inter- interrupt me. <laughs> Pretend this is crossfire, crosstalk. Yeah, exactly. Like, okay, great. We're going to use Layla's journalism skills as we often do to just keep you going. All right. So what is another show that you are binging right now? So binging as they are available and I've rewatched, there's two shows, Succession. There's a variety of reasons why I've just been obsessed with Succession. When you hear my life story, you'll understand. It doesn't involve like Murdoch right wing stuff, but it does involve family drama over a business. And then a show I highly, highly, highly recommend based on a book series that I think more people need to watch is My Brilliant Friend. So I watch it over again and oh, over yeah. again. The Elena Ferrante. Yes. I, I heard that was really good. It's a good reminder. Oh, you have to watch Ooh. it. I read the books, so I need to watch this. Yes, for sure. yes. Okay. It's on my list of, I need to read those books before I can watch it. It is <laughs> one of the most cinemagraphically Stunning TV shows I've ever wow. seen. That's mm-hmm. just one level, but yeah. Love it. Amazing. Next question. Is there an issue in the world that you're finding super cringy right now? Yeah, I'm finding the corporate bottom line, quarterly model, the most bullshit invention that that is cringe all the fucking time, the short-termness, the lack of understanding how uh, irrelevant that quarterly reading is, but how consequential it is to the long-term longevity of our progeny, of our survival on this planet. Pretty cringy. It is cringy. Is there an aspect of sex or sexuality that you'd like to see better portrayed in media? I am eternally fascinated with how to really talk about masculinities. I think there's two responses to your question. One is how the multitude of masculinities can be unpacked and where this like alpha masculinity reverence for like the Elon Musks of the world, the Andrew Tates, all of that, how that can be unpacked. There's a lot of spoofs about it, but what does it mean to really unpack a character like this and how damaging it is? It's funny because I, I grew up with four brothers and they're nothing like this world of the American, what I call a a pat mask, a patriarchal type of masculinity. And then the other thing I would say is many a people have slid in my DMs requesting that they be my slaves. And I had no idea what this world was and I'm an abolitionist. So my response to them was, (laughs) what do you wanna do? You you wanna give me money? But I have to call you a slave? No, just give me the money. I'm I'm just not, I'm an abolitionist. I can't call you my slave. I'm done. Did you see Slave Play? No. Okay. Oh, is you, the Slave Play about this? You have to see Slave Play. I'm not, I'm going to ruin nothing. Actually, I think they're not in New York anymore, but that needs to happen. It's okay, sad. then it needs a media outlet or inlet or whatever for it. But I didn't even understand until I found a Vice article about dominatrix culture what was happening that a lot of people perceived me as a dominatrix yeah and it was funny because I was getting these messages as we were in the writer's room and I was sharing them with some of the writers I mean over like underwear one guy wanted me to wear underwear and when he found out I was at Burning Man yeah you should have worn it for a week I would have paid you handsomely I mean sounds like a great job opportunity for the right person <laughs> love burning man um of, of course of course I, i'm i'm interested in all the kind of liberatory conversations that we're having around sex sex work and whatnot i tell you i'm a boring hetero i was not <laughs> privy to all of this well maybe you can be the change you want to see yeah exactly next, I am, next I am season thinking, yeah yeah yeah. i'm thinking about how, what does it mean to write about this yeah and, and the fetishisms and also with people who are so disconnected and yeah, you need a Jeremy O'Hara's guest writer, guest writing spot next season. Last question. Do you have a favorite sex scene in film, TV, or literature? So there's a couple scenes that jump out at me. One is, this is so corny, almost famous. The Beach Boys' Free Flows starts playing, and then it transitions into Johnny Mitchell's River, I believe, when Kate Hudson's character pretends to meet for the first time. The group's called Black. The Billy Crudup Billy, Yeah, so B- Billy Crudup's character. And the way that they are looking at each other as you just moved from free flows to river, there was something about, 
that's what I love the most. The, the acting play out around some sort of sexual tension is really beautiful to me. And another show that is based on a book series, but this adaptation in particular, I thought was phenomenal, was really all the sexual moments or all the, the moments between in normal people. Oh, another book that I read it, but show I have not seen. You so. haven't seen normal people? No, I oh. I need to. <laughs> I can't believe we're doing this podcast and you yeah, haven't seen these sex yeah. scenes. These are the sex scenes. I have these it in my scenes. head. <laughs> Do they get the cringe watcher approval? Oh my God. Yes. Unanimously. So I know so many people who, so many partners dragged into watching that show who were like, what's this sappy? Oh, these two are hot, <laughs> hot together. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was really funny because one of my friends watched it with her Arab father, like the whole show. <laughs> Lori, when you watch it, you will understand my and Layla's response because there's a level of, wow, this feels a little too intimate for me to be a viewer, you know, in a good in a good sense. I think that's part of what held me back because I have like, I have it in my head, their sexual tension. And I, like almost even when the casting, I was like, I kind of prefer my my imagination. To be honest, I saw the questions right before logging on. And I know that I have a whole bank of images, visuals, visceral experiences with sexual storytelling or sex, but I, I just couldn't percolate. We will just have to have you back. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'll just add one more really quickly. I It feels like not as much of a cop-out because I was a creative advisor on the first season, but a scene that hits me so strong is the now he's he's probably seen within the vein of white lotus but when dina goes out with this white guy who's fetishizing the fact that she's this egyptian muslim woman oh god <laughs> it is it, th that level of cringe and real life experience that a lot of us have had about our background being that sexual stimulant yeah for for you know vanilla white guys or some other folks i mean we've all likely had that experience i mean i i remember one dude was trying to hit on me at, in a coffee line and first thing everybody always asks is where what my background is and you know one part of my background is syrian and then this guy's like oh yeah i seem to always be attracted to syrians and i was just like just what we want to hear. Sir, this is a Wendy's. <laughs> like I said, and it was funny because he just got done telling me about experimenting with not taking a shower for a month and only using Ooh. wet wipes on key areas. So he just like clearly closed the door on anything happening with us <laughs> with those two things. If it wasn't going to be the fetishism, it was my insane disgust as like a hyper clean person. On fetishization, there is a movie that people sleep on, I'm going to say, and this is controversial. It's called I'm Through with White Girls, and it is based in LA. And oh, I haven't heard of this. It's not good by film standards, but there's a lot. I think there's more there than meets the eye, and it's a woman director. It's about a black guy who is dating white women and then like decides to stop. And there's a scene where he's like on a date with women of different ethnicities and they just cut back and forth to like what they're both seeing in each other. And then they just keep adding like more and more stereotypical clothing as the conversation goes on. Very well done. <laughs> My favorite part of that movie, um, which is again, kooky, but enjoyable. I oh my god, I pulled yeah. this up. Okay, I'm gonna have to find out where <laughs> Old school. it is. To find me. it. Worth finding. Seriously. That we're gonna have to collaborate because I, I wanted to write a trend piece once when I was very annoyed. Um, and was trying to pull other people of have you been ever been dating someone and realize you're not the first person of your ethnicity that they've Ooh. dated. If it's a white guy, I'm always not the first person. Right. Right. It's always the yeah, the skeletons come out, oh, you've only dated brown and black women. It's that's always been the thing. We're going to launch a startup to identify <laughs> fetishists before before they come find us first. Um, I think we need to launch our own dating app. Yes. This is where the money is. Yeah. Let's have our own dating map. Cringe or binge? Maitha can be the model for the... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I, or I already... I mean, I don't know if, uh, if you could say I'm a paid model, but <laughs> I say that definitely have modeled. I wanted to do this thing where you'd have to like pass, almost gamify it, pass these like 
tests about being an ethical person with dating to be able oh, to qualify ooh. for seeing profiles. <laughs> That's a great to idea. To make it a little better, but uh, you know, I don't like the Bechdel test, but but pe- you have to treat people well or like there's every third interaction is just an AI bot testing your ethics. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I just basically want to filter for any, you know, Tate followers, basically. That's, yeah. That would be, would be Pearson, helpful. Tate. I think that would that would do the the world of what would be reproduced a whole lot better if we knew that. I'm your first investor. It's, it's, let's make this happen. You heard it here first, people. <laughs> We're launching a company. Um, Maitha, you are just such a delightful guest. We're Thank so grateful to me. you. This Thank has you been for doing kind this. of fun. This was incredible. It was so nice to meet you. And thank you for this series and for this episode. Such a breath of fresh air, even though it was so, so hard to watch. <laughs> I'm glad you did the work to watch it, to digest it, and to continue the conversation. Because, yeah. you know, if something is living in your cells, it means that it it affected you and that's what we wanted to do drop the next season oh. we can't wait inshallah inshallah <laughs> thank you to our guest Maitha al hassan you can find her on instagram at Maitha al hassan m-a-y-t-h-a-a-l-h-a-s-s-e-n our editor is karen y chan and judith walker created our logos and cover art DL Dallas Engram created our theme song. You can find DL on SoundCloud. You can always support the show by becoming a patron on Patreon. And if you liked the show, please leave us a five-star review and tell your friends. And as always, thank you for cringe watching with us. 